The End of the Passage Chapter Eight of the Yukon Trail by William MacLeod Rain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wally Selfridge was a reliable business subordinate, even though he had slipped up in the matter of the appointment of Elliot. But when it came to facing the physical hardships of the North, he was a malingerer. The Camelot trip had to be taken because his chief had ordered it, but the little man shirked the journey in his heart just as he knew his soft muscles would shrink from the aches of the trail. His idea of work was a set of tennis on the outdoor wooden court at the Cusiac Clubhouse, and even there his game was not a hard smashing one, but an easy foursome with a girl for a partner. He liked better to play bridge with attendants at hand to supply drinks and cigars. By nature he was a Sybarite. The call of the frontier found no response in his sophisticated soul. The part of the journey to be made by water was not so bad. Left to his own judgment, he would have gone to St. Michael's by boat and chartered a small steamer for the long trip along the coast through Bering Sea. But this would waste time, and MacDonald did not mean to let him waste a day. He was to leave the river boat at the Big Bend and pack across country to Kamatla. It would be a rough, heavy trail. The mosquitoes would be a continual torment. The cooking would be poor. And at the end of the long trek there awaited him monotonous months in a wretched coal camp far from all the comforts of civilization. No wonder he grumbled. But, though he grumbled at home and at the club and on the street about his coming exile, Selfridge made no complaints to MacDonald. That man of steel had no sympathy with the yearnings for the flesh-pots. He was used to driving himself through discomfort to his end, and he expected as much of his deputies. Therefore Wally took the boat at the time scheduled and waved a dismal farewell to wife and friends assembled upon the wharf. Elliot said good-bye to the Pagets and Miss O'Neill ten days later. Diane was very frank with him. I hear you've been sleuthing around, Gordon, for facts about Colby MacDonald. I don't know what you have heard about him, but I hope you've got the good sense to see how big a man he is and how much this country here owes him. Gordon nodded agreement. Yes, he's a big man. And he's good, added Sheba eagerly. He never talks of it. But one finds out splendid things he has done. The young man smiled, but not at all superciliously. He liked the staunch faith of the girl in her friend, even though his investigations had not led him to accept goodness as the outstanding quality of the Scotchman. I don't know what we would do without him, Diane went on. Give him ten years and a free hand, and Alaska will be fit for white people to live in. These attacks on him by newspapers and magazines are an outrage. It's plain that you are a partisan, charged Gordon, grayly. I'm against locking up Alaska and throwing away the key, if that's what you mean by a partisan. We need this country opened up. The farms settled, the mines worked, the coal fields developed, railroads built. It is one great big opportunity, this country here. And the narrow little conservation cranks want to shut it up tight from the people who have energy and foresight enough to help do the building. Kusiak Chamber of Commerce ought to send you out as a lecturer to change public opinion, Diane. You are one enthusiastic little booster for freedom of opportunity, laughed the young man. Oh, well, Diane joined in his laughter. It was one of her good points that she could laugh at herself. 
I dare say I do sound like a real estate pamphlet, but it's all true, anyhow. Gordon left Kusiak as reluctantly as Wally Selfridge had done, though his reasons for not wanting to go were quite different. They centered about a dusky-eyed young woman whom he had seen for the first time a fortnight before. He would have denied even to himself that he was in love, but whenever he was alone his thoughts reverted to Sheba O'Neill. At the Big Bend Gordon left the river boat for his cross-country trek. Near the roadhouse was an Indian village where he had expected to get a guide for the journey to Kamatla. But the fishing season had begun, and the men had all gone downriver to take part in it. The old Frenchman who kept the trading post and roadhouse advised Gordon not to attempt the tramp alone. The trail it is what you call uh, dangerous. Fifty-mile swamp is a monster that swallows men alive, monsieur. You wait one week, two week, three week, and uh, someone will turn up to take you through, he urged. But I can't wait. And I have an official map of the trail. Why can't I follow it without a guide? Elliot wanted to know impatiently. The post-trader shrugged. Maybe so, monsieur, maybe not. Fifty mile. It is one devil of a trail. No chichacos are safe in there without a guide. I, Baptiste, no. Selfridge and his party went through a week ago. I, I can follow the tracks they left. But if it rains, monsieur, the, the tracks will vanish, n'est-ce pas? Lose the way, <laughs> and the little singing folk will swarm in clouds about monsieur while he stumbles through the swamp. Elliot hesitated for the better part of a day, then came to an impulsive decision. He knew the evil fame of Fifty Mile Swamp, that no trail in Alaska was held to be more difficult or dangerous. He knew, too, what a fearful pest the mosquitoes were. Peter had told him a story of how he and a party of engineers had come upon a man wandering in the hills, driven mad by mosquitoes. The traveler had lost his matches and had been unable to light smudge fires. Day and night the little singing devils had swarmed about him. He could not sleep. He could not rest. Every moment for forty-eight hours he had fought for his life against them. Within an hour of the time they found him, the man had died, a raving maniac. But Elliot was well equipped with mosquito netting and with supplies. He had a reliable map, and anyhow he had only to follow the tracks left by the Selfridge party. He turned his back upon the big river and plunged into the wilderness. There came a night when he looked up into the stars of the deep, still sky and knew that he was hundreds of miles from any other human being. Never in all his life had he been so much alone. He was not afraid, but there was something awesome in a world so empty of his kind. Sometimes he sang, and the sound of his voice at first startled him. It was like living in a world primeval, the traverse of a land so void of all the mechanism that man had built about him. The tracks of the Selfridge party grew fainter after a night of rain. More rain fell, and they were obliterated altogether. Gordon fished. He killed fresh game for his needs. Often he came on the tracks of moose and caribou. Sometimes, startled, they leaped into view quite close enough for a shot. But he used his rifle only to meet his wants. A huge grizzly faced him on the trail one afternoon, growled its menace, and went lumbering into the big rocks with awkward speed. The way led through valley and morass across hills and mountains. It wandered in a sort of haphazard fashion through a sun-bathed universe washed clean of sordidness and meanness. 
always as he pushed forward the path grew more faint and uncertain elk runs crossed it here and there so that often gordon went astray and had to retrace his steps the maddening song of the mosquitoes was always with him only when he slept did he escape from it the heavy gloves the netting the smudge fires were at best an insufficient protection it was the seventh night out that elliot suspected he was off the trail rain sluiced down in torrents and next day continued to pour from a dun sky his own tracks were blotted out and he searched for the trail in vain before the rain stopped he was thoroughly disturbed in mind it would be a serious business if he should be lost in the badlands of the bogs even though he knew the general direction he must follow there was no certainty that he would ever emerge from this swamp into which he had plunged before he knew it he was entangled in fifty mile his map showed him the morass stretching for fifty miles to the south but he knew that it had been charted hurriedly by a surveying party which had made no extensive explorations a good deal of this country was terra incognita it ran vaguely into a no-man's land unknown to the prospector the going was heavy gordon had to pick his way through the mossy swamp leading the pack-horse by the bridle sometimes he was ankle-deep in water of a greenish slime again he had to drag the animal from the bog to a hummock of grass which gave a spongy footing this would end in another quagmire of peat through which they must plough with the mud sucking at their feet it was hard wearying toil there was nothing to do but keep moving the young man staggered forward till dusk utterly exhausted he camped for the night on a hillock of moss that rose like an island in the swamp after he had eaten he fed his fire with green boughs that raised a dense smoke he lay on the leeward side where the smoke drifted over him and fought mosquitoes till a shift of the wind lessened the plague toward midnight he rigged up a net for protection and crawled into his blankets instantly he fell sound asleep elliot traveled next day by the compass he had food for three days more but he knew that no living man had the strength to travel for so long in such a morass it was near midday when he lost his horse the animal had bogged down several times and gordon had wasted much time and spent a good deal of needed energy in dragging it to firmer footing this time the pony refused to answer the whip its master unloaded pack and saddle he tried coaxing he tried the whip come old-timer one plunge and you'll make it yet he urged the pack-horse turned upon him dumb eyes of reproach struggled to free its limbs from the mud and sank down helplessly it had traveled its last yard on the long alaskan trails after the sound of the shot had died away gordon struggled with the pack to the nearest hummock he cut holes in a gunny sack to fit his shoulders and packed into it his blankets a saucepan the beans the coffee and the diminished handful of flour into it went two the three slices of bacon that were left he hoisted the pack to his back and slipped his arms to the slits he had made painfully he labored forward over the quivering peat every weary muscle revolted at the demands his will imposed upon it he drew on the last ounce of his strength and staggered forward sometimes he stumbled and went down into the oozing mud minded to stay there and be done with the struggle but the urge of life drove him to his feet again it sent him pitching forward drunkenly it carried him for weary miles after he despaired of ever covering another hundred yards 
With old, half-forgotten signals from the football field, he spurred his will. Perhaps his mind was already beginning to wander, though through it all he held steadily to the direction that alone could save him. He clapped his hands feebly and stooped for the plunge at the line of the enemy. Attaboy, Gord, attaboy. Nine, eleven, seventeen. Hit her low, you Elliot. When at last he went down to stay, it was in an exhaustion so complete that not even his indomitable will could lash him to his feet again. For an hour he lay in a stupor, never stirring even to fight the swarm of mosquitoes that buzzed about him. Toward evening he sat up and undid the pack from his back. The matches in a tin box wrapped carefully with oilskin were still perfectly dry. Soon he had a fire going and the coffee boiling in the frying pan. From the tin cup he carried, strung on his belt, he drank the coffee. It went through him like strong liquor. He warmed some beans and fried himself a slice of bacon, sopping up the grease with a cold biscuit left over from the day before. Again he slept for a few hours. He had wound his watch mechanically, and it showed him four o'clock when he took up the trail once more. In Seattle and San Francisco people were still asleep, and darkness was heavy over the land. Here it had been day for a long time ever since the summer sun, hidden for a while behind the low distant hills, had come blazing forth again in a saddle between two peaks. Gordon had reduced his pack by discarding a blanket, the frying pan, and all the clothing he was not wearing. His rifle lay behind him in the swamp. He had cut to a minimum of safety what he was carrying, according to his judgment. But before long his last blanket was flung aside. He could not afford to carry an extra pound, for he knew he was running a race, the stakes of which were life and death. A cloud of mosquitoes moved with him. He carried in his hand a spruce bough for defense against them. His hands were gloved, his face was covered with netting, but in spite of the best he could do, they were an added torture. Afternoon found him still staggering forward. The swamps were now behind him. He had won through at last by the narrowest margin possible. The ground was rising sharply toward the mountains. Across the range somewhere lay Kamatla, but he was all in. With his food almost gone, a water supply uncertain, reserve strength exhausted, the chances of getting over the divide to safety were practically none. He had come so far as he could see to the end of the passage. End of chapter 8